is called first world problems. So what they do is they delineate problems that are idiosyncratic and unique to a highly advanced technological country. So that would be opposed to, say, a third world problem. And a third world problem would be we don't have clean water or enough food or we're trying to run away from the local warlord. Uh, First world problem would be as follows. My DVR is full, so I can't record any more episodes of Ice Road Truckers. Um, They're all out of bacon in the grocery store today. And perhaps the most serious first world problem we face, Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. Um, what, What that account does in a funny way is illustrate the point that we as Americans do not like to be inconvenienced. We do not like inconvenience. We love our entitlement. We love our comfort. Furthermore, it's safe to say we do not like suffering in the least bit. But unfortunately for us, suffering is part and parcel of riding around on this planet together. And whether you're here this morning as a lifelong Christian, or you're just here this morning because your neighbor won't stop inviting you to downtown Prez and you've got to find some way to get him off your back, we're all going to suffer at some point. And Paul speaks to that this morning, and we, we might be tempted to say, Hey, Paul, what do you know about suffering? After all, you're an apostle. Uh, you've received direct revelation from Jesus Christ. You were a power player in the early church. What do you know about suffering? Well, all we have to do is take a look at 2 Corinthians 11 for Paul's, for, for Paul's suffering resume. Five times I received at the hand of Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And Paul wasn't referring there to a drug trip. He was referring to the fact that people threw big rocks at his head in order to kill him. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, robbers, my own people, Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So when asked, Paul, what do you know about suffering? His answer is, quite a bit. And his suffering resume stacks up far higher than ours, and so he's uniquely qualified to talk about suffering, which is what he does here. And he does it in terms of adoption. And we see that in Romans 8, 18 through 30. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows 
what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, even now as we park in this passage and as we contemplate our sufferings, will you overwhelm us with our older brother Jesus Christ and the spirit that you've given us to walk through our weaknesses with us? Will you change us? Will you bear fruit in us for the good of this church and the good of your kingdom and the joy of your people in Jesus' name? Amen. I grew up outside of um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, went to a small Christian school, and my sister and I both played point guard for our respective basketball teams um, for obvious reasons. One, we're, we're both short. Um, we had better than average court vision. We had good outside shots. And most importantly, we like to tell people what to do. And as a point guard, that's probably the most important part of the position. And I remember one day, we're, we had an away game, and the gym in which we were playing um, doubled as the church's auditorium. So it had carpet, uh, which presented a whole new set of problems. But for some reason, and I don't remember why, our offense had stagnated. So we're, we're just passing the ball around. And there's no shot clock in high school basketball. So it just went on forever and ever. And I heard, I, I remember this to this day. I remember my buddy who's sitting over in the stands this way. And he had sustained a soccer injury. Um, which is why you shouldn't play soccer, and he wasn't able to play basketball, I remember him audibly, he made this audible groan. And when we popped in the VHS the next morning at basketball practice to watch the game tape, we heard his audible groan. Now, why did he groan? Besides being a knucklehead, why did he groan? He groaned because this this is early 90s. This is... Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, he, he knew that there was better basketball to be seen than what he was seeing there. He knew that. And, and Paul points out for us groans here because we know there's something better. Um, and he, he does it this way. There, there are three groans here. Easy outline for us this morning. Um, no creativity. I'm lazy when it comes to outlines. There's three outline, three points here. There is creation's groan. In verses 18 through 22, there is our groan in verses 23 through 25, and there is the Spirit's groan in verses 26 through 30. So first we have, we have uh, creation's groan. It says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And what Paul is doing here is personifying creation. It's like Gimli in the Lord of the Rings Two Towers at the battles of Helm, Battle of Helm Deep. He's, he's real short. He can't see over the wall. So he's, he's trying to peek over the wall to see what's happening. And that's the imagery that Paul is using here to personify the created order. To say, it's waiting for something. It's waiting for the revel- revelation of the sons of God. It's waiting for the day when the sons of God will be freed from the presence of the curse. And if we re- rewind the tape we'll know and figure out how the creation got in this situation in the first place. 
when we look at the beginning of the scripture, we see that God created the heavens and the earth, and he created male and female in his image. He placed them in a garden, and he made a covenant with them, and he said, be fruitful, multiply, inherit the earth, or subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Oh, and don't eat of this tree. So what do Adam and Eve do? They eat of the tree. And so Adam, instead of receiving this glorified, curse-free, death-free body, Adam plunges himself and Eve and the rest of the created order into this bondage to this curse. And so creation groans under it now, and it's hostile. And, and, and God says in the curse, specifically to Adam, that this work I gave you to do, this subduing the earth and have dominion over it, will be hard now by the sweat of your brow and the toil of your hands, you will earn bread. And, and we've all experienced that, right? If, if, you're in a, if you're in some kind of agrarian work, some kind of farming work, you realize that it's hard labor. And even for those of you who are in information-based um, jobs, you know that the frustration. You, you've had that time where you've wanted to throw that monitor across the room or you've wanted to slug that incompetent manager, but you didn't do that because you didn't want to lose your job and you know that wouldn't be nice. You experience the frustration that this created order is bound under. You know this, and the creation waits to be freed from that. Um, The whole of creation is groaning in childbirth until now. And so when the sons of God are fully revealed, that is, when they are released from the presence of the curse and have no more effects or dealing with death and the curse, the created order will be freed from the curse. So what what does that mean for us in our suffering? Um, This means that the created order is important. The earth is important to us. And I think when we start talking about that, some of us that live here in the buckle on the Bible belt get a little nervous. Because talk like that maybe is unique to a different geographical region or maybe to some political party. But I'm saying, and the text is saying, that the care of our created order is entrusted to us. Why? Because this is our Father's world. Christians should be the best caretakers of the earth. That's what subdue the earth and manage it and have dominion over it means. If, if, if that doesn't convince you, think of this. Do you remember all those miracles that Jesus did? Jesus took five loaves and two fishes and, and, and he fed a huge multitude with it. Jesus walked on the water. Jesus healed sight and, and, and ears and, and lame feet. Do you know why he did that? It wasn't just a raw display of power or a circus show of, look what I can do. Jesus was fulfilling the cultural mandate for us. He was subduing the earth and having dominion over it in a way that we, nor our father Adam, neither could do nor would do. But we needed someone to come and do it for us. Why? In order to break this curse. So creation groans for the day when the curse will be lifted and the sons of God will be revealed. Secondly, our groan. We, we ourselves groan. Um, occasionally, I just like to park and watch Gladiator. It's a 2000 movie. Uh, a, a film released in 2000, directed by Ridley Scott, uh, starring Russell Crowe, um, as the betray, betrayed general turned gladiator, who, spoiler alert, well, there's, after 12 years, there's no spoiler alert. You should have seen the movie by now. Um, in the final scene, he battles and kills the Emperor Commodus 
played by Joaquin Phoenix. And, and as the last battle rages, the scenes keep switching from Colosseum to these fields. And they keep switching back and forth. And the further the scene goes, the more they're in the fields. And additionally, as, as he's entering these fields, um, his son is running towards him and his wife as well. And, and we, we may think, why is this significant? Um, because we're, we're concentrated on the battle. Like, this evil emperor has got his just comeuppance. He's got what's coming to him. And we like that. Um, but these fields are what mythology known as the fields of Elysium. It was the afterlife. It was, it was the end of all things. And, and the significant part of this, especially about his, his son and his wife, is we see them in, in bodily form. We see them renewed. We see him enjoying their company in bodily form. Why is that important? Because the last time we saw them in the movie, they were hanging from an archway with the bottom of their charred body showing. Um, this, what, what mythology got right here, what the director got right, is that, that there is a restoration of our bodies. And Paul speaks to that here in Romans 8. He says that the creation doesn't only groan, but we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Does, does, that, does verse 23 seem odd to anybody else besides me? Why would Paul say, you saw what Paul did, right? He says, the language here, the grammar says, we await the, our adoption as sons, comma, the redemption of our bodies. Paul equates adoption with the redemption of our bodies. And the weird thing to me is, Paul, why don't you say our adoption as sons, comma, the redemption of our souls? That's what we would think. But Paul here says, no, we wait for the redemption of our bodies. And this redemption is Exodus language. Um, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know the oft-told children's story of the Exodus, that the children of Israel are in slavery in Egypt, and God sends them a deliverer, and through plagues and through a Passover, they exit Egypt through the Red Sea into the Promised Land. And to Paul's original readers, when they saw this word redemption, bing, that's where their mind would go. The Exodus language. That there's some way that our bodies, because of our adoption, will go through an Exodus. What kind of Exodus? Right now... Our bodies are in bondage to the curse and to suffering. And you all experience that, right? Like there are some of you here, you don't need a weatherman. You've got a knee to tell you when the weather is changing. Some of you have aching backs and, and you know you've, you've had surgeries. You know the suffering and the toil and, and the, the, the toll that gravity itself has on your body. But, but part of our adoption means that our bodies will be freed from that. Um, we, we groan for this. We want this. And why do we groan for this? Look, look in verse 20, 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan for this. Wh- why do we groan for this? And the, the English isn't as clear here, but it could literally be translated, we wait eagerly for our adoption because we have the first fruits, which is the Spirit. Do you see how important that is? Unless you're in some kind of farming, you probably don't use the word first fruits all that much. But it refers to the first part of the harvest that guarantees the later part. Think of it as an appetizer. When you go to a restaurant, you order an appetizer, you know that the big meal is going to come. You know what the appetizer is that guarantees the redemption and restoration of our bodies? It's the Holy Spirit Himself. 
we have the guarantee, not just from a promise from God, but the very third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of adoption given to us that guarantees that our bodies will be adopted and redeemed and freed from the curse. So why is this important? This is important because it means the body is important to God. And so we need to take care of our bodies. And all week long, I've been convicted by this. And ever since I started studying this passage, look, I know how hard it is to take care of of our body. I mean, I've got pictures of me that look like I'm in my second trimester. I know what it's like to, to to be hard to take care of our bodies. And we're so quick to, to rebound from our culture's preoccupation with image that I, sometimes I fear we go the other way and like the body's not important. The body's is important. Do you, we sin in our bodies, right? Jesus said in Mark 7 that within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, unbridled lust, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within. But how do we do them? We do them through our body. We sin with our eyes, with our ears, with our hands, with our mouth, and with our feet. And God takes redemption so seriously that he sends Jesus Christ, God the Son, to take on a body just like ours. Do you know Jesus suffered the same things we do? Jesus knew what an upset stomach was. Jesus had acne. Jesus got tired. But in the same way, Jesus lived in a body for us and broke the curse so that one day we will have restored bodies. This is part of our adoption. Uh, Reading um, a book by a guy named Matthew Lee Anderson called Earthen Vessels, Why Our Bodies Matter to Our Faith. Matthew blogs at Mere Orthodoxy. So if you're a blogosphere type person, I recommend it to you. He puts it this way. We are earthen vessels that are given the extraordinary privilege and honor of bearing the love of God himself in our eyes, in our toes, and all other members that make us up. That which has been regarded as worthless has become the temple. The body is a beautiful ruin, a tragic glory. It has been stained and broken by the burden of sin, but purchased by the death of Jesus and made new through the indwelling Holy Spirit. The body is not a task to be completed, but a gift that we receive from God himself. And we demonstrate our gratitude by giving it to others in the way he has ordained. Our final restoration will not be through medicine or makeup, but through the resurrection from the dead. And Matthew is correct. Our bodies are important, and one day we will receive bodies. We will receive bodies that will be free from the death, Free from curse. Do you understand what we will do one day with our bodies? We will see Jesus face to face in our bodies. And we will worship God in our bodies. The patriarch Job in chapter 19 even says this. That though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see God. Adoption means the restoration of the entire created order. Adoption means the restoration of our own bodies And lastly, we take a look at the Spirit and its groan. It says here that the Spirit helps our weaknesses. And Paul specifically alludes to prayer. Now, for those of you who don't preach on a regular basis, take this as as some inside information. 
whenever any preacher comes along the, the topic of prayer, that's low-hanging fruit. It's easy to preach on prayer. You can always make people feel guilty about prayer. After all, which one of us in here would ever say, when asked, how's your prayer life? Which one of us would ever say, oh, it's doing great. It's never been better, and I don't think it could get better. Like, if, if someone came up to me and said that, I'd say, well, why don't you go pray and confess your sin of lying? Hey, all of us feel the weight of prayer. Like we know we should do it more. We know we should do it better. But it's so hard, and Paul alludes to that here. He says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself groans and forms the content of our prayer. The Spirit himself is given to us. He helps our weakness. So, so the, the Spirit comes along. And think of this. When is your best prayer time? When do you pray the best? It's when you're neck deep in suffering. When you are in your darkest hour, that's when you pray the best. Because you have a heightened sense of awareness that you're not in control, that you're not running the show, that you can't do all this stuff by yourself, that you need somebody's help, that you are a created being. And the Father graciously gives us His Spirit. So when we pray, we not only have the Spirit who is forming the very content of our prayers, we have the Son, Jesus Christ, interceding, going between the Father and us in our behalf. I don't know what better incentive there is to pray that's much better than a guilt trip. It's much better that we have God the Spirit and God the Son praying for us. And so they walk along our suffering with us. You know, there's a lot of stories in our suffering. Uh, My cousin posted a film by Ken Burns. He was making an overview of, of his films and his film on Jackie Robinson and baseball in particular. And he said this, he said, Truth is, we hope, a byproduct of the best of our stories. Well, you know what, Ken? I'll do you one better. Truth is, wed to, and a byproduct of the best story. The best story that is, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to free creation from its bondage to the curse. And He has come in human flesh to guarantee that we will have restored bodies that worship God perfectly one day. You know, in regards to suffering, we should never hear, we, sh- we should never have to hear, and we know this, we should never have to hear, you're fired. We should never have to hear, hey, let's just be friends. We should never have to hear, we regret to inform you. We should never have to hear, I'm sorry, we did all we could, but there's nothing else we could do. And, and some of you have heard those phrases. And, and some of you have, you've put loved ones in the ground. You know what suffering is like. And you know the curse of this earth and you bear it on your face. You know, when I first came to downtown Prez, there weren't a lot of folks with gray hair. Now, now there are more folks with gray hair. And frankly, I'm envious of you with gray hair. Not just because you have hair and I don't. But because you have experienced Jesus in your suffering in a way that I have not yet. You know by virtue of your age and and your life experience, Jesus walking alongside you in your suffering. You feel the Spirit's work in your behalf. And, And we're all going to suffer and we don't like to suffer, 
and we complain when we suffer, and, and we feel entitled to um, a house, a spouse, 2.7 kids, a, a fat 401k, um, and a couple of vacations a year. And when those things get messed up, we, we get upset. But think about this. Think about this. Look in verse 28. We know that for those who love God, God works all things together for good. And and frankly, I get nervous at this verse when Christians start quoting it because it usually comes in an inopportune time and in a flippant way. And I fear that sometimes we as Christians take suffering a little too lightly. We maybe sneak it under the rug like it's not, not really happening. And, and maybe, maybe some of you have this on a coffee mug or a cross stitch at home. But did you see what's happening here? Do you see what God is doing with suffering? God himself is taking suffering and the curse and he's turning it on his head and he's using it to form the image of Jesus Christ, his son, in us. Back in March, I was out in Denver with my sister and brother-in-law, and he's a landscaper, and he wanted to go to this landscaping trade show, and I, I didn't want to go, but he said, there's free hamburgers, so I went. And, and we showed up. There was a tent there, and there were blocks of wood over here. There was a dude in a shield with an industrial apron and a chainsaw, and there were blocks of wood over here in the shapes of bears and mountain lions and eagles. How did dude get from blocks of wood to eagles? the chainsaw. That's what he used to form the image of those animals into that wood. And you know what God the Father is lovingly doing? He is using the presence of the curse and and the suffering in our lives to form and shape in us the very thing we were made to be. That is an image of the firstborn son, Jesus Christ. And that is why suffering is important. And that, that is why Christianity is important. You know what? Christianity is the only religion where God himself enters the suffering of his people. God himself in Jesus Christ has taken on human flesh, experienced the full curse, the full wrath of God, death on the cross. He stared down the double barrel of wrath and curse and, and death and he rose up and lived to tell about it. And because he took that trip and he because he made that journey, and because he's our pioneer that cuts through the jungle of suffering and the curse and paves the way of righteousness for us, we get to walk that way too. And one day, we will be, just as Jesus is now, we will have glorified, resurrected, curse-free, death-free bodies in which we will worship God the Father. That is our adoption. And so suffering becomes a powerful apologetic for Christianity. You are no more on display with the gospel than when you are suffering. And people look into the fishbowl of your life and say, how do you suffer like that? Because my father is orchestrating the suffering and he's using it like a surgeon does a scalpel to skillfully form the image of his son, Jesus Christ, in me. No other religion can promise that. No other religion. So Jesus is our pioneer And through our adoption and through the groaning of our suffering of the creation and ourselves and the Spirit, He changes us to the image of His Son. This and I'm done. Um, Some of you are Downton Abbey fans. And by Downton Abbey fans, I mean you are wholly consumed by it and completely obsessed with Downton Abbey. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a Downton Abbey support group here at Downtown Prez 
helping each other count the days till what? Season 3 in January 2013. Yeah, you know who you are. Uh, but full confession, full confession, I don't watch it down Abbey. Um, I don't hate it, or I don't dislike it, pardon me, but I, I don't watch it, and it's just for the simple fact it doesn't come on ESPN. So that's, that's the only reason why I don't watch it. Um, so, um, but uh, another blog I follow, uh, Mockingbird, and one of my friends, David Zoll, contributes, moderates that, and he had a post on Downton Abbey. And, um, well, I'll let him tell the story. Ever since Downton began, we have been rooting for Daisy, the clumsy, simple-minded servant girl, and William Mason, the kind, boyish footman who clearly held a candle for her. At first, Daisy doesn't give him the time of day, but ever so slowly, his sweet demeanor wears her down, and she warms towards him. Not to the point where she reciprocates his feelings per se, but certainly to the point where she is no longer avoiding his bright-eyed advances. When William enlists in the British Army, World War I is going on, and asks Daisy to marry him, she can't bring herself to say no. She knows that she's not quite there romantically, but the last thing she wants is for him to go to the front with a broken heart. So with a conflicted conscience, she consents to the engagement and the writing is on the wall. This is a spoiler alert, so I'm sorry. Um, William suffers a fatal injury and is brought back to Downton, where the house rallies to fulfill his final wish. He and Daisy marry before he dies. Daisy, again, is deeply reluctant about the whole affair, but cannot summon the callousness to assert herself. In the wake of William's death, his father, the lonely, grieving Mr. Mason, reaches out to his late son's bride in the understandable hopes of establishing some kind of relationship. Daisy, feeling that she married William under false pretenses, runs away. She eventually comes back, and this, she has a conversation inevitably with Mr. Mason, and here's how it ensues. So this is Daisy and her father-in-law, Mr. Mason. Daisy says, you shouldn't have gone to all this trouble. Not for me. I don't deserve it. Not when I was only married to William for a few hours. You, know, you might not know this, Daisy, but William had three brothers and a sister, all dead at birth or not long after. I think that's the one reason why William married you, so that I wouldn't be alone. Without you, I'd have no one to pray for. I think William knew that. So will you be my daughter? Let me take you into my heart, make you special. You'll have parents of your own, of course. Oh, I haven't gotten any parents, not like that. I've never been special to anyone except William. That's right. I was only ever special to William. Never thought of it like that before. Well, says Mr. Mason, now you're special to me. Daisy has done everything she can to stiff-arm Mr. Mason. She's clung with all her strength to an understanding of love as quid pro quo, a this-for-that feeling, and you can hardly blame her. But it's a conception which causes her immense suffering because ultimately it blurs her vision. She is entirely caught up with her perception of this situation. When Daisy finally glimpses, finally catches a glimpse of how is she perceived by William and by his father, the scales fall from her eyes. What she thought was going on and what was actually going on was two different things. Mr. Mason is not relating to Daisy on the basis of her emotional righteousness, her feelings of affection, but on the basis of his sons. And it's on that basis that he adopts her. You know why I talk about adoption a lot? Because it's important. 
because it means the restoration of the entirety of the created order. It means the restoration and redemption of our bodies. And it means that we will enjoy the presence of our Father one day, and it forms our suffering even now. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't suffer well, and we don't like it. And but you, your son Jesus has suffered well on our behalf. And because of his suffering and his work and his resurrection in the flesh, we will be resurrected in the flesh and enjoy you in the flesh one day. So we pray that we would enter into each other's suffering and we pray that you would hasten the day when we receive the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.